What's good, everybody? Welcome to the Florida State League Radio Network. Happy to have you guys along the podcast today. And we are here with a very special interview today. We are here with former major leaguer. We are here today with 1985 World Series champion, Mr. Greg Pryor. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the show. I am happy to have you on today. Well, thanks a lot. It's great to be uh, talking to uh, you and my home state of Florida, you know, I went to high school and college there, so I'm really uh, privy uh, in the support anything going on in Florida. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on, and it was I'm, I'm really excited to be able to get to hear your stories and everything here today. So let's get right into my first question for you. In 1967, you were a high school baseball senior um, in Orlando, Florida. You did not get drafted, and you were not offered a scholarship to play baseball in college. How did you end up at Florida Southern College playing from 1968 to 1971? Hey, great question. Uh, love telling the story because um, I grew up in a family of six children. My dad was a high school teacher, math, uh, math teacher, and a, a football coach. I uh, uh, went to high school in West Orlando at Orlando Evans, and uh, I was uh, having a great time in life, uh, you know, the middle 60s, late 60s was a great time to be alive anywhere. And uh, at, at the end of my high school career, um, you know, I looked at my dad and I said, Dad, I said, what am I going to do? He goes, well, well, we'll get you down there where Jeff's going to school. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, your older brother uh, is the best pitcher on Florida Southern's team. Uh, he, he, got a, he got a four-year scholarship. Uh, let's, uh, let's see if they'll give you a scholarship. I said, well, they, they didn't call or they haven't offered one. So behind my back, my dad goes to the coach at Florida Southern, and he tells the coach that he's going to take my older brother Jeff out of Florida Southern, who was 8-0 as a freshman, if he didn't give me a scholarship. That's the only way I got to college to play baseball. My dad saw something in me that I didn't see in myself, obviously. Uh, and uh, the coach never told me that until after I graduated. He goes, you know, uh, after I graduated, he goes, you know, Greg, I, I never uh, wanted you in the first place. <laughs> your dad bribed me. Your dad bribed me to take you. So that's how I got to Florida Southern. But what a great experience it was to be in college in the middle uh, part of the state and and be able to enjoy uh, you know not only, not only the college life but also uh, a an experience in baseball that uh, I'll always remember. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, and and with your dad obviously being a football coach, uh, did did he ever want you to play football at all? You know, obviously I know sometimes when parents like that are involved in a sport, you know, like football and such, did he ever want you to try and get into football? Like, did he push you to get into football or uh, was it like, did he be able to play all sports and he didn't, he didn't really care about that? Yeah, my dad had five sons and, you know, he supported us playing football if we wanted to. But uh, fortunately for me, he wasn't the kind of father that said, uh, you, uh, you need to concentrate all your efforts on one sport. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he coached basketball also. Uh, and so I was. I grew up in a family where we played all the sports all seasons long. You know, we whatever the season was for that sport, we played it. Uh, in fact, in high school, uh, I would. Uh, I didn't have any golf clubs because we didn't have any money for golf clubs. Mm -hmm. I would uh, collect golf balls, and uh, I had one a nine iron, and I would go to a uh, nine hole golf course about uh, dark time, and I would hit golf balls until 
I couldn't see him anymore. And I'd get home with those golf balls in my sock, and, and my dad and my mom would say, Greg, you're obsessed with golf, aren't you? I said, hey, I'd rather play golf than anything. Yep. I love golf more than baseball. I love golf more than basketball. I want to play golf. So when I got, went to Florida Southern to play uh, baseball, it was, uh, it, was, it was going there with golf as my love and, and not any other sports. Wow, that's crazy. That that's that's a crazy. That must have been a crazy transition going from you know being a golf lover to really have to en- enrich yourself into baseball and get in to know the sport even more and more. That must have been a really crazy transition for you. Well, when I got to Florida Southern as a freshman, my uh, one of the other freshmen in my dorm uh, was Chuck Thompson. Uh, I still talk to Chuck uh, fifty some years later. Uh, he he was from Chicago and uh, his family uh, grew up on uh, country clubs. And he brought a, uh, a bag of uh, shag balls uh, to the dorm, uh, and and I looked at him. And I said, "What are those?" He goes, "Those are my shag balls." I said, "What what are shag balls?" He goes, "Those are balls that I take out and just sit for practice." And I said, uh, "Really? That's I've never seen that before." He says, "You can use them anytime you want." So I took his shag bag out to hit more shag balls my freshman year than baseballs. Oh man, that's <laughs> funny. That's hilarious. That's great. Oh man. <laughs> Yeah, that's and and it, and also it probably is good too, you know, being able to go to Florida Southern. You had your brother there and stuff as well. That must must have been a, a nice, um, you know, being able to feel comfortable when you go to the Florida Southern. That must have been a nice nice for you to be kind of comfortable when you go there because you have your brother there and you have family that you know, so you're not like nervous heading into it. Well, it was fine, but uh, you know, baseball is such a great sport that uh, you you can't hide out there. Even though yeah. my brother he went to eighteen and two his first two years. Uh, he signed after his sophomore year, so I was only with him for my freshman year. Oh, okay. He was gone. He, he signed with the Angels, yeah. But, um, you know, I had to get out there and uh, get better. It, uh, it yep. kind of – it was good to have him there the first year, but after the second year, after my first year, uh, he left, and uh, I was, like, on my own, so I kind of had to uh, blaze my own trail with my, without my brother uh, being yeah. around on the team. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I know what you, know what you mean there, so – Let's get into my next question here. In 1971, you graduated from Florida Southern after being named to the NCAA Division II All-American teams in 70 and 71, and you signed a professional contract with the Washington Senators. You were sent to the New York Penn League. Can you explain, you know, not being wanted by a college team to being able to play professional baseball? Well, you know, we only have uh, like 30 minutes to do this call, and uh, it, it's, uh, you know, to condense uh, four years of college uh, into uh, a professional contract, uh, I'm going to do my best here to condense this for the listeners, mm-hmm. and I appreciate everybody listening. Um, I uh, obviously uh, wasn't that confident as a college player because uh, I, nobody wanted me. The pros didn't want me, and uh, no college wanted me. I thought Florida Southern wanted me, but they really didn't. And so, um, and then after my uh, after my freshman year at Florida Southern, I played uh, ball, baseball in a uh, summer college league in um, in Virginia called the Valley League. And my brother was on that team, and he told them, he goes, hey, if you want me to pitch back here, you got to bring my younger brother, uh, too. So I got to play summer ball after my freshman year at Florida Southern in, in the Valley League. Well, I dislocated the shoulder uh, during that season, and uh, three weeks after I dislocated my left shoulder feeling a ground ball, the doctor told me that I'd never lift my left arm the rest of my life. I had turned all the nerves. There was no muscle. My shoulder was numb. And I would never lift my left arm the rest of my life. So, um, needless to say, I, I wanted to throw that in there because uh, for me to think uh, about going uh, to a professional career, 
uh, after being told that I'd never used my left arm as a uh, right after my freshman year in college was even a, a farther uh, stretch than 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 what you want me to explain. But let me just say it this way: uh, when when I, I stopped believing that the doctor was right, when I started going to Florida Southern and knowing that I had to get better or I wasn't going to play, because you can look up my college stats. I hit about 200 my first two years. I, I wasn't a good college hitter. Mm. Uh, I, I started getting busy. I started getting busy. I started improving. And then I, I uh, went back to, to the Valley League in the summer after my sophomore year. Uh, they didn't want me. They sent me a telegram not to come, but I went anyway. And I won the MVP of the Valley League in uh, 1969. Uh, I'll go, go back to Florida Southern, and uh, the coach says, well, Greg, I guess we'll see how really good you are. You know, you won that MVP up in Valley League. Let's see how good you are. So I started learning that you have to do it day after day after day after day. You, you, you can't rest. Yeah. You know, you're only as good as your last game. Yep. So uh, I became an All-American my, my, my uh, junior year at Florida Southern. Uh, for some reason, I, I, I put the barrel on the ball. Uh, I hit uh, over 430. Uh, I led the nation in RBIs per game. Uh, and then uh, I went to the Basin League in uh, South Dakota that summer. I played for Jack Stallings, who was a great high, uh, college coach at Florida State and Georgia Southern. I played I played against uh, with some future major diggers on that team, like Caldwell, Mike Cubbage. And then I go back to Florida Southern. Uh, I won the, the All American after I was drafted. You know. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm just gonna I'm gonna start this way. Oh yeah, that works. Yeah. After uh, after we won the national championship at Florida Southern, uh, I was drafted by the Washington Senators in the sixth round in 1971. And I was at the time I was in Miami working out with the Pan American team. I really wanted to play on that Pan American team. I was uh, I was there with Fred Lynn, uh, who was uh, you know a great major leaguer to be uh, for the Red Sox for years. Mm-hmm. And um, and I uh, Bobby Winkles was the coach of that Pan American team and. Uh, the Senators offered me $10,000, and they gave me three days to decide. So I went to the coach of the Pan-American team, and I said, uh, I have a chance to go play baseball uh, in Geneva, New York, in the New York Penn League, or uh, stay here and try to make your team. He, I said, what do you think I should do? He goes, son, if, if I was you and I had a chance to play pro ball, I would take the money and go play pro ball. Yeah. Well, uh, that was enough for me. I just said, okay, I'm leaving. I'm going to go take the money. So I took the money. And uh, I went to um, uh, Geneva, New York, uh, as a professional uh, for, with the Washington Senators. That was the last year of, of the Senators franchise. They moved to uh, Texas the next year. But uh, here, here I went from 1968, uh, 69, as a kid that never uh, thought about playing pro ball in my life, to now I was a professional baseball player. Uh, in 1971 with the Washington Senators. That's crazy. That That's incredible, especially with, you know, being told about the injury and stuff. That must have been, you know, something where it, it almost seemed like an impossible. That's incredible how it, the, the the upbringing and such and how that transpired. That's, that's a really incredible uh, thing to happen. That's awesome. Um, well, you, you know, I, 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 I tell people that story about uh, the doctor and my, my mm-hmm. dead shoulder, but, you know, I met people that were born with no arms and no legs. Yeah. So, for, for, for me, for the fans out there listening, uh, you know, every every major leaguer has gone under probably some broken bone or some problem in their life. So it, it really, uh, it crosses all boundaries. Yeah, every every sure. time a person succeeds at a sport, they have a story about how they overcame a, uh, people that didn't think they could do it, and, and they ended up doing it. So it's, yeah. it's mine's a, a fun story to tell, and I hope it encourages somebody on this call. Yeah, for sure. I, I really do hope to. I know there's a lot of people that, that could use like the encouragement and such, so I also do hope as well. Let's kind of let's move down a little bit. Let's move to something that you were a part of, and it's 
probably one of the most controversial and most historic moments in Major League Baseball, which is the Pine Tar game. You know, describe that incident from your perspective and what was it like to come into the game and pinch hit for George Brett, who got ejected? So most Major League Baseball fans know about the story, how George Brett ran out of the dugout with the Pine Tar and everything. Just kind of describe it from your perspective. And again, what, what was it like, you know, pinch hitting for George Brett after he got ejected from the game? Well, I didn't actually pinch hit because, you know, as uh, people might remember that know about the Pine Tar game, and we, we, need, to keep, we need to keep the Pine Tar game uh, uh, talked about because I was in L.A. recently uh, with a uh, Uber driver, and I said, uh, you remember the Pine Tar game? And he, this guy was a Dodger fan, big Dodger fan. Mm-hmm. He goes, no, I've never heard of the Pine Tar game. So I'm glad you're bringing this up. <laughs> we need to keep <laughs> talking about it. Yep. Anyway, um, I, I, you know, George George hit the home run in the Pine Tar game uh, in the top of the ninth. It was the, we were, there were two outs, and we were down by one run. George hit the home run. I was in the bullpen. Uh, it was the first time and the only time in my life I was ever in a bullpen. Mm-hmm. And I was down there to help warm up the pitchers because we had two catchers in the game, and my manager, Dick Hauser of uh, the Royals, uh, told me to go to the bullpen to warm up the left-handed pitcher in case he needed one, in case we tied the game up. Well, I'm out in the bullpen warming up the left-handed pitcher, which I really didn't like doing. And George hit the home run, and uh, we went up by one run because we had a runner on. Uh, uh, UL Washington was on, I think, first base. Anyway, as George, you know, gets back around the home plate, uh, Billy Martin comes out and objects because he thought there was too much pine tar uh, too close to the end of the bat on the bat. So Tim McClellan and uh, Joe Brinkman, the guys with the umpires there, uh, they they decided they're going to call George out, which was obviously the worst decision they could make during the game. Uh, which meant that uh, that George was the third out, and uh, George obviously uh, screamed and ran out and bumped the umpires and got thrown out of the game. So we, uh, after the American League president overturned the um, ruling, leaving fail overturned the ruling because you know it, had the umpires just let Billy uh, object or or uh, or or uh, what do you call it when you uh, when you when you want to follow a complaint, whatever, as a manager. Oh man, he, he, he could he, he, he could have just let the American League president make yep. the decision, let the game end, play the whole game out, and and, and uh, if if Billy uh, if Billy's objection was upheld by McPhail, then um, George would have been called out, and the game would have reverted back to the Yankee win. But what they did was they made us go back in there about you know, four to six weeks later. To finish the game, because McPhail counted the home run, we had to go back in there on an off day. We flew into Newark. We had to take a bus from Newark over to Yankee Stadium, and I'm riding all the whole way, knowing I'm going to be at third base in the ninth inning, in the bottom of the ninth, because the Yankees are going to come up and hit. Mm-hmm. We only have one run lead. I mean, could, could they have tied the game up? Could the game have gone 20 innings instead of nine? Heck, yeah. That's what you think as a ball player. You know, sometimes you just you just consider all the possibilities. So. We get over there, we're dressing out, we go out to, to try to warm up to play four outs. Because there were still, we, we still had one out. I mean, mm-hmm. there were still two outs. Hal McCray gets up, he struck he struck out against George Frazier. But before Frazier threw the first pitch, he stepped off the mound and they threw the ball to first base. And, and they uh, appealed that uh, George Brett didn't touch first on his home run. Now, there was a different umpire crew. For the, for the replay of the Pine Tower game than the first game. The whole four new umpires. So so what happened was that the four umpires from the first game signed an affidavit 
saying all runners touched bases on the home run. So Billy had to walk off the field with that paper and rip it up because it was meaningless. But I give Billy, I give Billy Martin so much credit. You know, I, he fired me three times. I was, I was in three spring trainings with him. I wish I could have played for him. But he, he was uh, one of my favorite uh, guys to be around in baseball. Because this guy knew every angle on how to win a game. Even if, even if it was illegal, Billy Martin was going to try to win. Anyway, so Albuquerque strikes out against Frazier, and I go out to third base uh, to finish the game at third base. Quisenberry uh, was our uh, reliever. He got him out three, three up, three down. Uh, we uh, got back in our bus, went back to Newark, uh, got ready to fly to Baltimore for the next uh, night because we had a game in Baltimore. And George Brett had a wad of cash on the plane uh, when we got back to Newark Airport because he didn't come over to Yankee Stadium. He stayed and uh, ate dinner uh, in Newark. I said, what's that money? He goes, I just filled my pine tar back for cash. And he started slapping me with it. You know, I'm like, I said, wow. I said, I, I, he told me how much he got, but I'm not going to tell anybody on this call because it's it, not my business yeah. to tell. That's not my business to tell George's business. Yeah, it's a fact that he sold the bat because he had he had to get the bat back later on uh, when the when the Royals sold to Avron Fogelman. He demanded that George get the bat back. So I don't know George. George the bat's in the Hall of Fame now. But but the Pintar game uh, was uh, will never be happening again. It was one of those things that uh, you know the odds of that happening in the first place were real high. But but it'll never happen again because they uh, they know now that that uh, guys clean the Pintar off their bat. They they. Managers will not complain about expect to get uh, an advantage because of pine tar on the bat. Now, now they're ringing uh, garbage cans and dugouts and tell the guy who <laughs> wants to get home plate. So the game has passed us by. Oh, tell me, tell me about it. It's it's been a crazy thing, but that that's an incredible story. That's crazy that you guys just had to go back for a replay, and that that's insane the way that all turned out. What? Wow, that's an. Inc- Incredible story. Um, let's get into another thing that you were a part of as well. Another pretty historic moment in baseball, the demolition disco. So obviously this was a promotion and stuff you were a part of that the uh, Chicago White Sox did. Uh, what was that like being a part of that and seeing what, what happened to the field? And obviously we had the forfeit hat. Just describe that entire portion you know i mean you know you could try and condense it because we obviously don't have a ton of time but you know try try and describe that you know for what happened and such and what was it like being oh, there well you're 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 bringing up a uh a friday night uh in comiskey park which is no longer there anymore uh unfortunately it's, it was a great park i i got uh, i was a pre-agent in 78 and i signed with the white Sox a one-year contract and i could not believe that I'd be going to play in Comiskey Park, the home of the first All-Star game in 1933. And right in the box, right across the plate from home plate from me, stood Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig in that All-Star game. What a, what a thrill it was to play in Comiskey Park. Anyway, that was Bill Beck's team. Bill Beck was uh, known as one of the greatest showmen in the history of baseball. And unfortunately, uh, on a Friday night against the Red Sox, the uh, – oh, no, 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 I'm sorry, sorry. That was that – was, that, that wasn't that night. That was a, the, the game was a, it was a doubleheader between the yep. uh, Tigers and the uh, White Sox, and uh, we, it was a very rare uh, doubleheader. So um, we knew that they were going to have a, a disco promotion. It was uh, this jockey in uh, Chicago named Steve Dahl. He was a rock and roll station disc jockey, and uh, he hated disco. So he gets with 
Bill Beck's son, Mike Beck, and those guys created this promotion that anybody uh, in Chicago that hated disco and wanted to blow up disco music forever could bring a 33 and a third to the game and get in for a reduced price. You just had to bring out a disco record with you. So, you know, they thought they might get 20,000. Well, what happened was 44,000 showed up with disco records and 20 more thousand couldn't get in because they, they had to close the gate. The stadium was packed. I'm out at shortstop in the first game and everything was fine until like the seventh inning. And that's when all the fans finally started taking their seats. Banners were all over the ballpark. I mean, I, I've, I've never, I've never been in the ballpark with such a, um, and with, with such an aura that that stadium overtook. It was like being at Woodstock with a baseball game being played. You know? it, <laughs> yeah. it, was, it, it was it was a rock and roll crowd that might have never been to Comiskey Park in their life. This is the only time they've been there, and all the reason, the whole reason they're there is to watch these disco records get blown up in center field. So after the game was, they, they were firing the records on the field during the first game. They had to stop the game because they smuggled records in. They, they were firing them like Frisbees onto the field. And it, it was, it was, I mean, I, 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 felt, I felt and looked around at the stadiums that I played in because I, I got so used to playing in, uh, you know, packed stadiums. But this, this day, I just stood there and I think, wow, what a, what a great place to be. <laughs> <laughs> right? Really yeah. yeah. People, they, they were chanting, disco sucks, nonstop in the stands. It was so funny. Anyway, after the game was over, and I, 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 I uh, give myself credit. I drove in the only run for our team. We lost four to one. I'm in by my locker, getting ready to play shortstop in the second game, and uh, the starting pitcher walked by me back to his locker, and I and I looked at him. I said, "Hey, what's wrong?" I said, "Aren't you aren't you pitching?" He goes, "Have you been out there?" I said, "No." He goes, "There's a riot out there." Oh. I said, he, "He says you need to go look." So I'm thinking, riot? Oh my gosh, what's going on? So I ran down the clubhouse. Uh, try to get out down the runway into the dugout to see what was going on. And the fans were uh, charging into our clubhouse uh, in mass, uh, trying to overtake our clubhouse, these disco people. <laughs> so the, our clubhouse guy had a bat in his hand, and I was right behind him. And uh, he, they, they had like 20 uh, of these disco guys trying to take over our clubhouse because they stole everything in our dugout. Whatever oh was in gosh. our dugout was stolen. Yeah, yeah, they stole all the gloves, all the bats, everything we had down there. That's anyway, crazy. Um, he he he's got his bat up over his head, and he's and he's looking at him, and and I to this day I'm, I remember his exact words. He goes, "One more step, and somebody's going to get upside the head. I'm going to knock your brains out. Come on in here." Oh my gosh! Not, none of these guys decided to come forward. They, they backed up a little bit. He went over and he acted like he was going to swing at him. And they backed up, and he closed the door, and he put the wood plank over the door, and then he backed up like he was going to faint. He, he was so shook because uh, it was, uh, you know, he was trying to protect all of us because these, these people went crazy. There's videotapes on YouTube where you can punch in disco demolition, and you can see the riot that happened. Well, they, they called the mounted police. We heard the, uh, the horses outside our clubhouse, and then uh, the, they finally got uh, some – order to what was going on and we finally were able to get out of our clubhouse after at least an hour and uh we went out on the field and it was an unplayable field they had torn up the field they tore up home plate they tore up the pitcher's mound 
Uh, and we had to forfeit the second game to the Tigers. And it was uh, the last time that uh, a game had ever been forfeited because of fan violence. And uh, is, and uh, they, the uh, American League president, again, Lee McPhail, uh, he gave the game to the Tigers. And uh, uh, we lost the game because of the fans, uh, our inability, inability to control the fans. Wow. So I was the only player. I was the only player to play in the entire game, and also the disco demolition game. So whether that's an honor or not, I don't know. <laughs> that's insane! Wow, that's that's crazy, and that must have been a so so much of a different crowd, you know, compared to just going to play in a regular game. That that crowd must have been insane. Like it must have been an insane crowd to be around, just because of the, what they were doing and such around you. Well, it's funny is I interact with fans now on Facebook. And I, I run into some Chicago fans that swear they tell me they were at that game. <laughs> that must have been, oh boy, I would not. Other wanna... pictures, you know, it, it, it's it's uh, it's it's a it's not a bright spot in the White Sox history. Yeah, you know when you can't control the fans when they riot, but it's just one of those happenings in baseball, like the fine chart game. Sure. Uh, it'll never happen again, and uh, I'm just one of those guys that happened to be in the game when it was going on. For sure, for sure. All right, my next question is, so in 1985, you and the Kansas City Royals defeated the St. Louis Cardinals to win the World Series. You know, describe winning the World Series, you know, the first one in Kansas City history. And how did that World Series, how did that really intensify the the rivalry between the, the Cardinals and the Royals? Obviously, they're both interstate rivals. How did that really intensify it, you know, when you guys played against each other? Well, you know, uh, back in uh, when I played, there there was no interleague play, so uh, you know that hadn't been put in yet. And uh, we, you know, we, we were. Uh, and in my life, I was always an American League fan because you know I, I liked Cleveland mm-hmm. Indians when I was a kid and living in Akron, Ohio, and I just liked the American League. So uh, you know, uh, we, we, even though there was some uh, similarities, because Whitey Herzog. Uh, was the manager of the, of the Cardinals in 85, and, and he had been previously the manager of the Kansas City Royals. So, you know, there was some connection there. But in regards to any rivalry, uh, you know, it, I, I guess you could say that the Cardinals already had uh, their uh, history of success. They, they, what, a, what a great, great franchise they've been over many years with Bob, Bob Gibson, Lou Brock, and those guys. And the Royals had uh, been... Uh, pretty successful in the late 70s and early 80s too you know they, they had been in the world series in 1980 so it was going to be the i-70 series and it was uh so much fun for us because we knew we didn't have to like fly to la or fly to new york we yep. could just you know take, take a short flight from kansas city to st louis we uh obviously got down three games to one and then um danny jackson threw a great game uh to uh to win uh the 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 uh, fifth game in St. Louis brought, brought the series back here to Kansas City, and in the sixth game, uh, most people uh, that are real good baseball fans will remember that our leadoff hitter George Order got on because the first base umpire Don Denkinger called him safe and he was really out. Which you, before it's a replay happened in baseball every 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 effing day. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like it, it's not like an umpire ever missed a call. Unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, it was it was it, 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 it played a part in the end of the game but for all you Cardinals fans that might be listening it didn't cause you guys to lose that game you could have <laughs> got three three more outs in a row you know mm-hmm. the Cardinals fans they they, they like to blame Denkinger for missing that call first base on order but anyway we got two runs to uh, win that sixth game and then uh, 
we wanted to play the second game as soon as the sixth game was over, but they made us wait till the next night. We went out and we smoked them 11 and nothing, and um, I got my World Series ring on, and they can't take it away from me. Yep. Uh, I love uh, talk. I love talking about uh, his- the history of the game, and there's not many players that ever won a World Series, and here I, I'm a kid that uh, went to high school in Orlando, Florida, winning a World Series ring in 1985. Uh, you know, 16 years later, it was a, it was a great thrill, and I'm just glad that I was able to be traded to Kansas City in 1982, locker next to George Brett for five years and Frank White for five years, and it was just a great pleasure to uh, play on the greatest team in baseball in 1985. Yeah, for sure. I, I know what you mean right there. So let's get into my last question before I let you go here today. You have a book. It's called The Day the Yankees Made Me Shave. What can people expect from this book, and why is it such a unique story? Well, great question. Thank you for letting me promote my book, and I oh, hope yeah, people sure. uh, remember that name because that's the website they can look at. It. It's called The Day the Yankees Made Me Shave, and I obviously I had a lot of these weird stories I'm sharing with you. Uh, I wrote about them in my book, among other stories I write about. Uh, my daughters, I had three daughters and grandchildren, and uh, they told me, they said, Dad, if you don't write these stories out, people are just going to start talking about them, and they're really not going to know the stories about when you were there, Dad. Would mm-hmm. you please write the stories in your own words? So uh, in my in, in the last three years, I, I wrote down 100 stories that I have about my career, and I decided to pick 27 because there's 27 outs in a ball game. And I, I was saying, well, if people don't like my 27 stories, I'm not going to write any more. You know? Yeah, yeah. So I chose, I chose 27 stories. And uh, the story that I chose for the title is that my first story in my book, The Day the Yankees Made Me Shave. And I'll tell people quickly the, the first story, and then uh, they can go by, by the rest of the stories if they want in my book. Uh, the Day the Yankees Made Me Shave had something to do with uh, me getting traded to New York in the uh, winter of 77. I was a Texas Ranger, uh, thinking about being a starting shortstop, going to go to the Ranger Major League camp, and then uh, I got uh, traded to uh, New York Yankees uh, in February of 77, and the Yankees had just been swept by the Reds in the 76 World Series, so I'm, I'm going to the American League Championship team with Thurman Munson, Catfish Hunter, Reggie Jackson, uh, Craig, uh, Chris Shamless, and all the, all the guys. Mm-hmm. So I get, I'm there the whole month, and, and I'm growing a mustache like Thurman, like Catfish, you know, like Reggie, had a mustache. But when I got sent to AAA, uh, to, to the Yankees team in, in Syracuse in AAA, they told me that I had to shave my mustache before I could play on the Syracuse team, which didn't make me very happy because I was expecting to make that Yankee team in 77. Uh, history will show that I had a much longer career than the infielders that made that 77 Yankee team, but it was a blessing in disguise that I got sent to Syracuse because um, – I'll tell the, the, the it's in my book, but I get to Syracuse and I get all the guys in the clubhouse and, and I uh, looked at them and I said, all you guys deserve to grow a mustache. Mm-hmm. I said, you're, you're just as much as a man, Thurman Munson. So we had, we had a mustache revolt. All the guys started growing mustaches and I took uh, a, uh, the letter into the manager and I said, Hey, we're all growing mustaches. And I was trying to get released. I was trying to get the Yankees mad at me to release me. Because I deserved to play in the big leagues, I thought. So they were threatening the whole team about, you know, releasing them or sending them to double A, whatever. And I was thinking, you know, I, I didn't care. I told them, I said, I'm not shaving. I don't care what you do. You can release me. 
Well, three weeks a- three weeks after I started uh, the Mustache Revolt in Syracuse, the Yankees and George Steinbrenner changed the minor league rule for facial hair because of me. They uh, they said all minor leaguers now can grow facial hair, and and all the guys on my team were up. They were patting me on the back. They were saying, "Prior, we love you. What a man! You're our hero." But here I was, still stuck in Syracuse, still stuck in AAA, growing a thin mustache. You know, it didn't make me that much happier. But I became a free agent after the 77 season, and then um, I got an agent named Steve Greenberg, whose dad was Hank Greenberg. And uh, Steve got me a one-year deal with the White Sox, and I ended up playing against the Yankees for the next nine seasons in the big leagues. In 81, I'm at the uh, Arlington Racetrack where they race horses, during the strike of 81 and Steinbrenner was walking a horse uh, on the track. And I ran down there and I said, Hey, Mr. Steinbrenner. I said, it's Greg Pryor. I used to work for you. (laughs) He he goes, Pryor. He goes, I remember you. He goes, we should never let you go. So it was kind of indication that, you Mm -hmm. know, he he knew that uh, the Yankees uh, should have kept me, but they didn't. And here I am, um, four years uh, with the Chicago White Sox in, under my belt and uh, five years with the Royals and I'm talking to you and enjoying uh, talking baseball yeah for sure man well Greg thank you so much for uh, you know coming on to the show today it was a real pleasure and I actually I, w- I was going to ask you this before we jumped on but maybe I'll ask you this now um, obviously with your yeah. book and stuff I had a great uh, a great giveaway idea and if you would be willing to do this would you want to me and you kind of go together and give away a signed book of yours would you be willing to do that yeah but who are we going to give it to oh we'll give it to one of our listeners how, how, how are you going to pick one I will uh, I will randomize it I have a little randomized and I'll <laughs> I'll base it on the criteria so okay hey listen if, if they want to uh, get a book, they can, they can go to The Day the Yankees Made Me Shave. And, and okay. I'll, send, I'll send some autograph. I'll send them some autograph cards if they if they buy my book. You know? Okay. Well, if, do... if they want me to personal, if they want me to personalize it, I will. But you know, let's. Uh, you, you work on giving the book away, and uh, you keep me posted. And uh, you baseball fans out there, uh, keep loving the sport. I know yep. sometimes it's hard to love baseball, <laughs> but it's still the greatest sport ever made, and I appreciate uh, everybody's time listening today. Oh, it was a real pleasure, man. You gave us some great insight of, of just kind of your your stories in baseball and, and, and your upbringing. It, it, it was a great, and I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, again, guys, Greg Pryor. Greg, thank you so much for joining me, and uh, I will see you down the road, my friend. Okay, thank you. Thank Talk you so you much. Too. Thank you, you too. All right, guys, that is pretty much it for this episode. Again, thank you so much to Greg Pryor for giving us some of the best insight in some of the most historic moments in Major League Baseball. Really, truly incredible what we have gone uh, gotten to listen to today. Um, go buy his book. He'll send you some autograph cards, as you said. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'll try I'll try and do a giveaway. We'll try and buy – maybe we'll buy a book and then we'll give it away on the podcast. Hopefully that will be uh, an option. We'll, uh, I thought I'd ask him real quick, but um, – wasn't trying to get you know anything out of him just thought i asked but um greg again thank you so much for joining me we'd like to thank our sponsors today as always pick drafts dfs which is the official sports gambling sponsor of the florida stigley radio network use discount code fslbb19 that is all in caps to save 25 percent off on all their contests use discount code fsl network to save 15% off at officialsdepot.com, which is the official re- referee and sports umpiring gear of the Florida State League Radio Network. And we would like to thank Sam Tenez and Grayson Rogers for all, 
always allowing us to use their music in our podcast. Again, thank you so much to Greg Pyre giving us some of the best insight of some of the most historic moments in Major League Baseball with the Pine Tar game and that, and also talking about his book too. Again, go check him out. I will put a link in the description below. Thank you guys so much for listening. Peace out, and we will see you guys in our next episode.